Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community that brings startup builders together with experienced operators to share key insights on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Peter Fishman, a co-founder and co-CEO of Mozart Data, an out-of-the-box data stack that provides quick and easy ways to consolidate, organize, and get data ready for analysis without the extensive engineering efforts or technical knowledge that is common today. Today, we're talking with Peter about the benefits and challenges of the modern data stack. But before we get into all that, Peter, welcome to the show. How's it going today? Great. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, let's learn a little bit about you and get started. Tell us, how'd you get started in tech? So I have actually an academic background in economics and statistics. And at the time, actually, very few economists found their way into tech. A lot found their way into finance and you know many became uh, academics or consultants or sort of fields that really leverage economics in a, in a very straightforward way. I came out to graduate school in the Bay Area and fell in love with the Bay Area for obvious reasons. And if you want to stay in the Bay Area, the predominant uh, opportunities are in tech. And I found myself being able to apply kind of my statistical chops that I had picked up in graduate school and in my PhD program, I found applications of that in technology um, at a time when not many companies were really big on, on data because it was so expensive and the field felt more nascent. But I found my way in at actually just just as just as the market started to really boom on how companies were using data and the interesting applications of data in technology. Can you tell me what year? Sure. So I graduated from my PhD in, in 2008. So college was the best 10 years of my life. And then I, you know, as a bright-eyed 30-year-old, I'm ready to jump into the, to the job market. And I ended up finding my way to a company called Playdom. Uh, Playdom was uh, a social gaming company that really took off during the social gaming boom where companies like Zynga and Playdom had hundreds of millions of users on the Facebook platform. And those companies were really taking advantage of the enormous amount of data that you could collect on Facebook. So not only did Facebook have hundreds of millions, or in their case, billions, of, of users, these users were doing a lot of things. They were interacting with the game and the Facebook platform in a way that you could learn a lot and then leverage that data to really optimize, one, how you advertised your games, two, how you developed your games and sort of in-app gameplay and in-app economies, and even just even projecting what games might be successful. So these companies like Playdom and Playfish and Zynga all started really competing, not just on game design, but on leveraging the data from these social platforms in terms of optimizing how they spent money. Okay. And then, so from then to now, tell us, how, how were you inspired to, to build, how were you inspired by that to build Mozart data? So at Playdom, I mentioned we had hundreds of millions of, of players and, and from that, lots of data and a very a complex system for one, gathering that data, and then two, analyzing it. And I 
from Playdom, which was acquired by Disney, I, I transitioned to another startup because I really got addicted to the world of startups where you have rapid grow, growing companies, people are working really hard, but the work seems to go by instantly because there's there's so many kind of different challenges each day. So I got addicted to that world and found myself actually working just a few floors below Playdom was a company called Yammer. Um, Yammer was nothing like social games. Yammer was a B2B, what is now called SaaS. But at the time, you know, it's like a B2B, bottom-up SaaS company. And they wanted to develop like a consumer application. So there was almost no relationship, you know, in in theory, between working in video games and working in effectively enterprise communication. But what I quickly discovered is the same principles of understanding what's working for your users and what's not apply in almost all of these settings. Um, And when I transitioned to Yammer to take on the role of leading the data team, I quickly kind of discovered, hey, we need tooling and data infrastructure and Many of those tools that were sort of inspired by my time at Playdom that we ultimately built at Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft, and then you know, and then later at Microsoft, um, had inspired the type of tool chain that I thought many companies should be using. And as I took subsequent jobs, and I went to Zenefits and Open Door and Ease. As I went to those subsequent jobs, I was constantly building the same sort of data stack. Your first handful of months on the job is about hiring, you know, great talent, like great data engineers, and then implementing a data stack that's going to be able to consume the data that you need from the sources that you need. And what ultimately my good friend Dan and I, you know, thought about was, you know, why is it that the first handful of months at at these jobs are sort of setting up the same stack the same way? Um, Why can't we just sort of build something like this as a service? And um, I think that that is kind of what is generally referred to as the modern data stack. But what we wanted to be was the easiest way uh, to spin up that modern data stack. Can you just give me the elevator pitch for that? Like, I, I feel like I understand the the need for this, but uh, you know, what have you built? And you know, sell it to me in uh, thirty seconds or less. Sure. Like, like I said, we're building the same type of tools and technologies that later stage companies use, and we enable startups to implement it um, in a cost effective way, but most importantly, without hiring data engineers. So, one of the big challenges in the valley or really across the globe, is that it is very difficult to hire engineers, but it is extremely difficult to hire data engineers because they're at an extremely high premium because very few people have that exact skill set. So what you find is that for companies to compete on data, they have to first hire a really great and talented data engineer. And this is a very daunting challenge. Beyond that, it's very, very expensive. And What we try to do is essentially be your data engineering team. So we help you set up your data pipelines in a way that you can manage it, even with limited technical expertise. Can you tell me uh, what the mission is at Mozart Data? The mission is to enable uh, early stage companies to compete leveraging data. And uh, when I kind of, I mentioned my, my stint at Yammer and at Zenefits, um, when I think about those teams and the teams that I built there, uh, before we even started, you know, drawing insights out of the data, 
Um, we had to hire a bunch of data engineers. We had to write a big check to a data warehouse company. And then after having spent, you know, de facto millions of dollars, then we could start hiring data analysts who could hopefully make sense of the signals that we were getting um, in our advertising, in our product, in our retention of our users. The problem is not all companies are that well-funded. So if the bar for competing in data is having millions of dollars and having the capabilities of hiring great data engineers, what you're going to see is that not everybody can do this. And you'll have the haves be able to compete on data and hire great talent. And the have-nots just sort of find themselves further and further in the hole as not being able to leverage the data as effectively. So our mission really is to have companies compete on analyzing data as opposed to doing the rote task of sort of collecting and cleaning data. Really interesting stuff. Something I kind of love that you said earlier is like, you know, you've worked at, at, well, more than one startup, but different industries, right? And and, uh, these industries that have nothing to do with each other, uh, inside they have this similar need of, competing when it comes to data. So that's very, uh, very much uh, the statistician in you, right? Finding patterns between these things that don't seem similar. Let's talk about data and the modern data infrastructure. Uh, you kind of mentioned analytics and, and serving an analytical purpose. Uh, as far as I understand it, data infrastructure serves two kind of purposes. There's uh, helping you know people make better decisions through the use of data or the analytical use case. And then there's kind of building data intelligence right into your customer-facing apps, like, like leveraging machine learning, uh, which can be called the operational use case. Can you give us like a high-level overview of, of these two kind of uh, purposes? Sure. So we're predominantly focused on the first of those two. So we think about how do end users that know their business and know what they want from their data, how do they then turn to that data how is that data available to them? Um, and how do we make it easy for that data to become available to them? So what that typically looks like today when you don't have the technical chops to necessarily pull that data into a data warehouse is that you know people have you know, historically downloaded a bunch of CSVs and in their favorite sort of spreadsheet tool, whether that's G Sheets or Excel, um, join them often with like lookups, and then you get these very monstrous uh, Excel files, and the desktop becomes your source of truth. And what we find is that that's incredibly time-consuming, and it's very error-prone, and it sort of leads to many different answers across the company. So we're really hyper-focused on solving sort of that you know, data intelligence question, which is how do you how do you get that data so that people that understand the business that have the agency to make decisions uh, on that data, you know, have access to it and you know can can work with it in a form that they're comfortable with. So you mentioned sort of bucket number one, which is generally called BI business intelligence, and there are a variety of BI or data viz tools you know, out there that that are effectively the last mile in terms of how you 
think about the data, how you report on the data, how you consume it before it turns into an action. And then there are the questions for the, the data team or the business operations team. That might be a sales ops or a marketing ops team. Um, the questions tend to be really the, the key driver of the business. It's asking the right questions of the data and then doing the crunching, whether that's, again, in a, in a spreadsheet or whether that's by SQL, to actually get your answers. So that's, that's sort of use case number one, which is business intelligence. And what advanced looks like in that is where you've set up a lot of uh, automation and a lot of parameterization. So I can ask that question over and over again for different cohorts or subsets and I can get different answers and by having smart people on the team that can sort of go down a path of problem solving I can make an insight about the data so sometimes those insights are you know in marketing spend so I need to know okay am I better off spending a dollar on Google or a dollar on Facebook and this is a very, you know, common question. And to do that, it seems like a very straightforward problem. You know, you can use one of your tools like Google Analytics or, or you know, an, an ads platform. And, you know, it could say, all right, you know, this is how effective your $1 on Google went, you know, in terms of looking, you know, did it drive some traffic? Did that traffic, you know, turn into a conversion? In practice, it's very hard to see very far down the funnel or the full lifetime of that customer. So often when you spend a dollar and you measure upstream, you're measuring, you know, often apples to oranges, namely different channels perform massively different in terms of the audiences they bring in. And it varies a lot by, by platform and by, by targeting. So uh, a simple problem like, am I better off spending money on Facebook or Google? And by the way, most companies quickly outgrow that and end up on many platforms, is a challenge of having data from multiple sources. So that's really when a powerful data infrastructure helps. So when you're analyzing things in a silo, quite honestly, most of these sort of SaaS tools that you that you might leverage will have some sort of reporting that will sort of suffice within the silo of that tool. But as you start to need to combine data across sources, that will, that will become a lot more challenging. And that's when setting up data infrastructure is critical. Now, of course, I, I often argue the earlier you set it up, the more likely you'll be set up for success. So at the point that you're analyzing data from multiple sources together, um, you know, by then you're probably a few months, not too late, but you would have ideally set it up even earlier. So I'm a huge advocate of setting up your data infrastructure largely as early as possible because inevitably um, you're going to need it. The second case that you mentioned is what is often, you know, you mentioned a use case, which is machine learning or generally product features that that leverage data and and actions of the user in order to provide, uh, you know, often recommendations or some form of optimization or some sort of prediction about that user. And there is a whole field and suite of tools that take the data from a data warehouse and then. You know, whether it's build models 
and then productionize those models, or whether it's to do what's often called reverse ETL or operational analytics. This is all, again, last mile problems from the data warehouse. So taking summaries and models and 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 compute that you've done in your data warehouse and then applying that um, within you know a product or a SaaS tool for some subsequent action. So I used to work at Yammer. Yammer was a freemium product. It's now generally called bottom-up SaaS. Um, what that means is it's it's free to use, and you found, you would upsell premium features to companies that were using a lot of it. So I think famously now most people credit you know Slack with this model or refer to it as the Slack model. Um, I like to still think of it as the Yammer model. If you were a salesperson or an account manager at a company with a similar sort of bottom-up SaaS approach as Yammer or Slack, it would be incredibly helpful not just to, let's and let's say that you're using Salesforce as your CRM, it would be incredibly helpful to have aggregates about uh, the companies that you're reaching out to in your CRM so that you can live in a singular place. In order to do that effectively, you want to have a common definition across the company and you want to be doing a lot of that summarization and analysis within your data warehouse and then send it back to a tool like Salesforce. And that, along with some of the sort of in-product features that you talk about, I bucket into the general uh, the general space of what, what would be called sort of operationalizing analytics. So now I understand kind of the uh, you know the purposes around these two types of infrastructure. Help me understand the ecosystems that have kind of grown around these use cases. So data warehousing has kind of grown around the analytical first use case, which is probably what we'll stick to, and then this idea of a data lake is has grown around the operational use case. Can you talk about the the two kind of parallel ecosystems and where you see them at today? Sure. So the one that, again, we focus on is, is is data warehousing. So Mozart Data is built on top of Snowflake. So Snowflake has become a a clear winner in the in the sort of data warehousing space and 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 data platform. And what's really amazing is the both the you know, the power, the speed, and the cost, and, and how much those have decreased in the last, you know, decade. I'm sorry, uh, the, the increase in power. But, um, uh, you know, what you're, what you're typically, re- you know, referring to when you refer to the, the modern data stack is this sort of powerful data warehouse um, where you can ELT your data. So what that, that means is you can dump a lot of data into the data warehouse, and because because of effectively the step the separation of storage and compute, you can do so sort of cost effectively. So, um, in order to put lots of data into your Snowflake warehouse, it's reasonably inexpensive, and then from there you can calculate things. And it's again the 
modern sort of power comes out of the 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 way that you can just combine incredibly large amounts of data, summarize incredibly large amounts of data, and do compute on incredibly large amounts of data. So um, when, when we think about sort of the modern data stack, it all centers around getting data to the data warehouse, and then from there, having a powerful data warehouse that downstream tools that we started our conversation on, whether that's essentially sending that data to you know, to other applications or whether that's analyzing it in a BI tool can sort of take advantage of this new sort of powerful layer that you can do compute. Now, we call it ELT. Historically, it had been called ETL because the, the E stands for extract, the T is transform, and the L is load. And uh, in general, now more people are doing their sort of data cleaning and their uh sort of defining of their canonical tables um, within sort of the, the, within the data warehouse. So within sort of a transform layer or within sort of after uh, having loaded it, if that makes sense. Are data warehouses and data lakes uh, on a path toward convergence? So, so the answer is, you know, kind of, which is to say, a lot of times your data strategy had to be complicated. Um, data is all about getting ROI on the data. And historically, what there had been would be sort of a landing pad for cheap data. And then there would be sort of an expensive place for data. So think of it as like a storage unit and a house. And, you know, you don't mind sort of throwing all your junk that you pick up at garage sales into your storage unit, but then you'd want to sort of clean it up before you put it, you know, sort of within your, within your home. And I think, you know, again, so much depends on the evolution of, of cost and the fact that, you know, costs have been driven down so dramatically in terms of storage, it makes sort of some of your some of your cleverness about saving costs on data that is maybe less frequently used, it becomes more trivial. Now that said, there is sort of a, like a counterpoint, which is we are now generating and collecting more data than ever. And there's signal in that data, but it might not be a very powerful signal. So there, there becomes this sort of tension between how much data you want to collect and how much data is ultimately valuable. And to the extent you're exclusively you know, collecting valuable data that cleared the old bar for being put into a data warehouse, you, know, you might have been leaving some of your signal and insight in your you know, in your database, in your SaaS tools, in whatever it is. Now, a lot depends on, on market dynamics, but it's, it's really a question of how quickly can you either start using that less valuable data in a meaningful way, or how inexpensive is it to, you know, essentially store the, the lesser valuable data uh, in your warehouse. Got it. Okay. So you see these still as two very different things, but depending on how the costs and uh, power of technology go, they'll probably stay two different things, but 
So I think I think people are now using a variety of terms. They they use the term like data lake house. The, these worlds are actually very much combining, you know, insofar as the the data strategy of so also I, I, I should I should make a big distinction between the data strategy for um, enterprises that have you know a variety of different arms and parts of their organization and and startups which tend to have a singular focus and have a little bit more of a concise sort of data story. So uh, you know I think typically when you're when you're talking about a data lake strategy, this is mostly at the enterprise level because they are going to have more of that data that is going to be cold or, or, or lower value. They're just going to have more, that. That's a function of just having more of it. Next question. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of confusion around like what technologies are on the leading end of this trend and, and how they're used in practice. Can you tell us like what's happening in the modern data stack? So in general, there's this transition to this world of ELT uh, from ETL. So, so what that means in practice is that um, the challenge is how do you now ELT your data? And there have been a number of incredible advances in the last, you know, five to ten years. Uh, it, I had mentioned at the start that you begin by by hiring data engineers to move your data from your SaaS tools to your data warehouse. The the first thing, you know, that's changed is is one, there's a lot of a lot of SaaS tools and 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 two, there's a lot of very standard commonplace SaaS tools um, with APIs. And as a result, there've been a whole wealth of companies that have started that basically automate the EL process. So, you know, very famously, Fivetran and 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 Stitch, you know, have have enabled a number of companies to get their data from their different SaaS tools, like a Salesforce. I was actually when I was at Zenefits, I was the the first com- customer of Fivetran, and what we wanted to do was move our data from Salesforce to to Redshift. And they were they were able to do it for us. And rather than hire another data engineer, we leveraged Vivetran. Now companies can leverage you know these tools again to not just solve your Salesforce issues, but to solve you know hundreds of SaaS tools and getting that data to that data warehouse. So you know one of the biggest changes of the last you know five years is that there's a number of sort of automated EL tools, but those tools don't just move the data, they also monitor schema changes in the sort of default tables so that you sort of, I, I, I think the, the word is automatically get your data in, in your data warehouse, even when changes occur. So that is one huge change, but that change is probably five plus years old. The next big change is this is the explosion of the T space. So now that EL is handled, what goes on in the T space? So T stands for transforms. Transforms are often, you know, joining tables together, um, cleaning tables up, dropping, you know, dropping rows and columns. It's it's a lot of sort of cleanup work that had been traditionally done via scripts. 
now or done instead at the BI layer in very long, ugly SQL queries. That would be you know, joins or a lot of where clauses. And, and this is the wrong way to do it. It leads to a lot of inconsistent answers. And one of the biggest source of frustration with BI tends to be that you ask you know, two people the same question and you get three answers. So the T space has really blown up in terms of understanding, monitoring, cleaning your data. So T no longer, in my mind, stands for transform. It's it's kind of all of these things. So the most common you know, T tool has become uh, DBT, which is is a is a popular tool um, for doing for doing transformation for essentially before your BI tool, uh, cleaning your data, creating your your core tables. Um, we're a company that also plays in the T space that is trying to make it incredibly easy to do this this type of transformation. So one of the sort of theses of companies in this space is that that business users that that know some SQL should be able to compose tables. Unsurprisingly, I like I like the word compose tables where where Mozart data. So the problem with that is historically that would involve writing scripts or maybe even just small little snippets of code. And those business users tend to be uncomfortable in that environment. So we want to make it so a design principle is that you can just know SQL and be able to, you know, navigate a few blue buttons and, you know, you can write and schedule tables. So the T space is a lot about cleaning your data, but it's also about getting to know your data. So exploring that data, um, you know, understanding features of the tables, not necessarily being in those tables all day. So one element is data cataloging. So being able to understand what columns mean what. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is, you know, if I think about some of the the tables that I've worked with in the past that I've, you know, in, in, in all honesty, helped create, you know, there'd always be like email, as, as one of the key identifiers, but it would be like email, email to, email to final, email to final, final. And, you know, if you're someone new to the company and I said, hey, could you count how many emails or how many unique users we have? Um, they might not know to use email to final, final. And I think that uh, generally the T space is, again, about uh, one, you know, getting to know your data to cleaning it up, creating core, core tables. Um, and then last, being able to diagnose where issues are arising in your sort of data pipelining. So um, there's this sort of idea that once you've said it, you forget it. That rarely tends to be true. Often it is not uncommon for there to be some sort of data syncing issue. And then you have to sort of go play detective and sort of by process of elimination, identify where the issue is. We think about how do you shorten those cycles of detecting, you know, where your uh, data problems occur. So it's good to be in the T or the transform space. Are there any other technologies uh, in the modern data stack that are like really winning right now? Well, you've certainly probably read recently about the successes of a lot of reverse ETL tools. And we mentioned that when discussing operational analytics, as well as a lot of ML infra. 
I think the, obviously I'm biased. I think the most exciting opportunities are in the T-space. You have a lot of folks that are in the BI world. The BI world is the most mature part of the modern data stack. There, It's the most tangible piece. It's the piece where the most people have opinions. So I think it's been iterated on the most, though the problems in it are never ending because you can always be you know, more user-friendly in that space and need to be, and there's a ton of value that gets created by doing so. I think the BI space is not necessarily too mature. I think we're probably in the early innings on almost all parts of the data stack, but I find that that is clearly the most mature of these and the other parts of sort of operational analytics or or the T space. And now, you know, the the EL space is also, I mentioned five plus years old, but I do think of it as still a very exciting place. You know, recently Airbyte, which has uh, the open source solution for for a number of connectors is raised a, a very large round and the idea of essentially the whole world contributing to making data available um, is very appealing to me as, as a theory. So I think that, look, the number of SaaS tools out there, I feel like are, you know, it's like there, it feels like there's like more SaaS tools than like electrons in the universe. So it's like, you know, you, you can't like, you know, bat your eye without there being yet another one. So the fact that sort of the market leaders have hundreds of connectors tells you that there's a huge opportunity, not in the long tail, but in the in the mid tail. All right. Well, well, let's unpack Mozart data. Can you tell me the origin story of the company? How, how did it get started? So actually, Dan and I started this company during COVID. So we were founded in April of 2020. Dan and I have been friends for over 20 years. We actually, 10 years ago, founded a hot sauce company together. And both of us have been in the data space for over a decade. And again, it sort of built similar stacks and wanted to really combine our skills and found that we were always sort of drawn to, to working on either hot sauce, but but more appropriately working on, on data. So um, so Dan and I started a, a data company right at the start of COVID that kind of scratched our, our own itch, which was, you know, we knew that sort of our next job was to, you know, go to some new context. You know, Dan had worked in, in, in healthcare and financial, and I had worked in enterprise communication, in HR, in real estate. And we said, all right, well, the next context should be us building us as a service. Tell us more. Who are the people behind uh, Mozart Data? Yeah, so we have an incredible team. We are now 20 people. So really rapid growth over the last two years. We have admittedly a lot of former colleagues. So, you know, Dan and I have been lucky enough to be joined by some really incredible folks that we had worked with in the past. And, you know, our, our team is about 10 technicals that, that Dan run and then sort of 10 folks on the business side that, that, that Dylan, our VP of revenue, uh, runs. So we have a nice down the middle split. You know, we're constantly trying to you know, build product and, and get customers. So that sort of mirrors up to what our team looks like today. 
So one key challenge that people we interview have and listeners have of the podcast uh, who are trying to scale startups is hiring. So can you tell us like, what's your strategy for attracting the, the best talent and maybe what are some of the challenges you face? Sure. So the best advice, and I am certain that this is the right answer, is to you know start out by cheating, which is to say, if you can hire people that you know are great, you're at a at a huge advantage. So you know when you can recruit from your network, that is a a really great place to start, and you should put disproportionate amount of energy and efforts into doing the hard thing, which is asking people and to join your mission, to sell them on that mission and that vision. And and Dan and I have been able to do that successfully. So a, a large fraction of our existing team, I think about two thirds, um, have worked with us at some point in the past. So always cheat when you can. Now, some people, their their networks aren't, aren't full enough that they have really that as a, a starting off point or or their net or they find that their networks are going to be more focused on folks that are reluctant to be at a super early stage company so they're they're you know this strategy only goes so far we are big believers in having have a company culture and then live it and recruit to it so we have a number of core values that are very much tied to how we think about recruiting. One of them, so I I went to college at, at Duke. I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. And we have a company core value about uh, an ex-Duke basketball player named Kyle Singler. Kyle Singler played the one, the two, the three, the four, and the five at some point in his career. And, you know, namely every single position. So... And they asked Coach K, you know, what position does Kyle Singler play? And the answer is he plays winner. And most of your early hires have to play the role of winner. Um, you can't necessarily, I mean, some companies that are hyper-focused in maybe a, 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 a very small, narrow technical field might be different. But in general, you need to hire people that can play the role of winner. You know, Dan played the role of front-end engineer for a long amount of time. And, you know, I think today that's not ideal, but that was the right solution for us at the time. So I think the, you know, it starts, you know, recruiting is tough. It's all about top of funnel. It's about generating a good top of funnel. And it's about, you know, I think, I think one of the things that founders do is that they try to build their top of funnel and they get quickly dejected by the rejection. So, if you have the capability of asking people and, and, and selling people on your vision, and when they say no, asking them for advice, suggestions, referrals, um, this tends to be a very fruitful way to fill up your pipeline. The challenge is that it's very hard. It's, it's, very, it, it's very ego draining. And, and you know, the reality is that it's a very competitive job market. And, you know, when you are competing in a world where um, big company compensation packages are what they are, you know, you have to, one, offer the right style of work that sort of is compelling to a certain person. And then, you know, and then you have to live it and deliver on it. And then you have to go after those people that are drawn to that. Can you? 
Give us an example of maybe something that seemed like a rejection or a failure at first that might have even hurt your ego that 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 you know you think you handled uh, in the in the in a good way or the best way possible that maybe led to a success. Any examples of that? So I would say that there have been a number of them. First, throughout my career, building data teams, and uh, I have both rejected people who have come to make offers to later in in in, in their careers. Maybe. Namely, um, I had I had seen their professional growth, and I was very impressed with it. And then similarly, I have had offers rejected where the folks later decide that you know maybe this this would be compelling. And and similarly, when we were raising money, I received countless rejections, some of which came around and 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 you know participated later, you know pre seed rejections that became part of the seed round or or, or whatever it is. So I think. I think like there's sort of this like you know general circle in terms of somebody at Mozart that that rejected us and then ultimately proved to be fruitful. I do think that I do think we have a couple of examples of engineers that initially had expressed an interest in being a consultant and in general I am not religiously opposed, but I am a non-advocate of hiring, you know, your team sort of to work very piecemeal. I think the people that are building the core parts of the product early on really have to be incredibly all in on your company. So I have uh, a number of members of our engineering team that started as consultants, not by my ask, but by their own. And I don't think I duped them into joining full time, but maybe they said other, maybe they'd say otherwise. But I think what we discovered was they loved working with our team and working with Dan and you know working on these problems. And there was sort of a breadcrumb set to, that led to them joining in a full time capacity. Our first engineering hire was a story of that, but we have actually a few engineers that were hired in this exact fashion. So this is funny. This is like when an athlete takes a shorter deal in order to ultimately choose what team they want to be on. And I think great engineers certainly have have the same sort of almost power that like a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant have in terms of willing to accept a shorter deal, knowing that when when you find the right situation, you can turn that into a longer deal. So that's, you know, that's kind of the most direct version of what you had asked. Help me understand the selling points of Mozart data. Like what are the key features and functionalities of your tool that you'd like to speak on? Uh, the selling points are, again, we are the easiest, fastest, most cost-effective way of getting that modern data stack. So in general, you know, companies will trial a bunch of different technologies. They'll be searching for either a data savvy consultant or a data engineer for months. And then, you know, you find whether it's weeks or months or even years later, you have the data stack in place. Uh, Mozart gets that done in under an hour and a business user can set it up. So largely you need credentials to connect your core tools. So I really get excited about with Mozart customers is when is when a business user, maybe that's somebody in sales ops or marketing ops or biz ops or a data analyst, gets a data stack up and running and is 
building sort of the core tables and the core reporting for executives, for decision-making, um, all like within a week. And it's a really like, you know, honestly, I often there's a really great relationship that we have with our customers that there's this sort of sharing of progress and they want to brag and show me, you know, what they've done. So I think those were the real moments of, I would call it product market fit for us, which is when I see a user empowered and then, you know, creating those results and then watching their own position within the company elevate, but sort of leveraging their own sort of data savviness and their own chops, but also our technology. Along those lines, like of a customer using Mozart data, like who who are the primary users? You, you mentioned, you know, they probably have uh, credentials to the company's various tools. What kind of tools are they already using? And yeah, anything else you could tell us about your primary user? Yeah, I mean, most of our users are, are, are largely early stage companies. So Siri seed or series A type companies. So companies that are generating data, but maybe don't have a lot of data infrastructure in place or don't have a lot of budget for a big data engineering team. And we are really like almost a surprising solution uh, to them. They, they sort of don't even realize what is capable or what is available to them in the modern data stack. So yeah, the, the, the titles here vary a lot. You know, we sell to CEOs and CTOs, but we also sell to, you know, people in growth marketing and, you know, your citizen data scientists. So people that are sort of familiar with data cleaning, know what they want from the data, know how to think about kind of how to write, ask the right questions of the data. And, and those are sort of the folks that, you know, I, I really, I love watching succeed on our platform. Can you talk about your business model, how, how you make money? Is it like a recurring monthly type of thing or, or how do you kind of charge your customers? Yeah, so we we have largely two types of plans. One is sort of an all-you-can-eat bundle where given your size, we, we charge you a fixed amount monthly and that varies depending on essentially the amount of data that you're consuming. Um, and then we, we have a usage-based plan which really successful companies with their data will graduate up and, and on to. Ultimately, it's a SaaS model. So we have, yes, like a monthly subscription and we charge on the default in data, which is now basically the, the rows, which is the monthly active rows. So the rows that you ingest and the compute that you do. So a very similar model to the way that the EL tools and the data warehousing tools charge. So it's it's largely usage-based. So instead of sort of starting with a bill of, you know, a million dollars, now you kind of start with a bill of $6 and a, and a credit card swipe. And then as you use and consume more data, um, hopefully you're getting a lot of value out of that and you see kind of it, you know, the, the costs of your data consumption obviously scale up with, uh, the amount you consume. Before we get out of the, get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and, and learn about Mozart data? Great. So we have a lot of content available at mozartdata.com and I am Pete at mozartdata.com. Awesome. We're going to end it here. Uh, if you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a rating. Peter, thank you for joining the show. We appreciate uh, the time you took to sit down and uh, your time and your insights. It was uh, It was a pleasure interviewing you. Thanks. Had a great time.